invite you now to take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, behold the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. A sense of the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this Lord's day. Lord, we thank you for all of your grace. And Lord, we thank you that there is a source that we may come to. Lord, we come to you thirsty. And we pray that you would uh, grant us satisfaction as we drink from the fountain of living waters. Lord, we thank you so much for providing us your word. We thank you for how you intend to shape us and mold us through it. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would accomplish the purpose for which you have sent your word, that it would not return to you empty. But, Lord, may we be uh, shaped, edified, built up, convicted, uh, brought to you. Lord, I pray that you would grant us the eyes to see so that we would see the glory that is truly there. Lord, we pray that you would grant us spiritual taste buds so that we would be able to taste and see that you are good. Lord, show us what yourself through your word. Uh, bless now the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So we pick up once again in John chapter 4. Now to this point, Jesus has begun to develop a following. We see the authoritative teaching and miraculous signs that he has been performing has now caused his reputation to spread so that people are coming to him in large numbers. Uh, let's pick up here in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So we begin with this first setup to our story, uh, Jesus leaving the area after hearing that the Pharisees had learned of his ministry and how it was beginning to surpass John's. Now we see throughout the Gospel of John that the size of Jesus' following, the number of people that were coming after Christ, uh, is shown to have been a point of envy for the Pharisees. Right? They become jealous of him. They are worried that they will lose their followers as more people are going to follow Jesus. And so it may be implied here that Jesus was leaving the region so as not to enter into an additional conflict with the Pharisees at this early point in his ministry. As we'll see, there will be many conflicts yet to come with the Jews. And if you remember back to the wedding in Cana, Jesus' initial response to his mother was that, my time has not yet come. Right? Jesus, therefore, we see, was very deliberate about how and when 
his conflicts with the Jews would come about knowing that these conflicts would ultimately lead to his arrest and his crucifixion, right? So Jesus was seeking to accomplish everything the Father had sent him to do and did not want to start, uh, you know, the clock, so to speak, uh, which would lead to his arrest and crucifixion uh, prematurely. And so this, this may be here the implied purpose for why Jesus was going to leave the region and head back to Galilee. Um, continuing on. <clears throat> and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Let's zoom in on that phrase. Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey. Alexander McLaren comments on this passage and writes this. How precious it is to us that this gospel, which has the loftiest things to say about the manifest divinity of our Lord and the glory that dwelt in him, was, is always careful to emphasize also the manifest limitations and weaknesses of the manhood. John never forgets either term of his great sentence in which all the gospel is condensed, the word became flesh. Now John, whose gospel begins with his prologue, we spent a good deal of time unpacking that as we looked at the glorious pre-existence of God the Son, right? Jesus is not just another man, but he is God incarnate, God who has taken on a human nature, the eternal word of God, who in the beginning was with God and was God, and through him all things were made. This same logos, this same word became flesh, became a man, and made his dwelling among us. And here we have a great example, a great demonstration of the fact that Jesus was truly a man. And that is, we see, he got tired. It says he was wearied by his journey in the hot sun. He was tired, thirsty, uh, likely sweaty, perhaps somewhat smelly. If that sounds sacrilegious to you, you may not have thought through the fullness of what the incarnation really meant. Jesus was fully human. Fully man, along with everything that means. Now it is important that we do not miss this fact. For what we find is that scripture has reasons for emphasizing the full humanity of Christ. And if we miss the full humanity of Christ, we will not benefit from that doctrine in the way that God intends for us to. Now, we like to talk sometimes about the uses of doctrines, right? So these, these teachings, these things that we believe from scripture have very practical applications, right? Ways that we apply them to our lives, things we are meant to take from them uh, and be either encouraged or challenged or built up or something. So let's look for a moment here at the uses of this doctrine of the full humanity of Christ. Hebrews 2.17 begins by saying, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Notice that language. He had to become like us in every respect. Only a human can bear the penalty for human sin. We see the full humanity of Christ was necessary for him to function as our high priest, merciful and faithful. And then Hebrews 4.15 has this glorious statement. It says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, has been tested as we are, yet without sin. 
Right? The temptation might be there for someone to think of Christ as though he were too far above our experiences to truly sympathize with us. Right? We read of Christ as the Logos, the one who has eternally been God, the one through whom and for whom all things were made, the triune God, a person of the triune God, worshipped by angels, the heavenly beings, the like of which would cause any of us to tremble. Right? God, high and holy, lifted up of eyes too pure to even look upon sin, set apart from sin, frailty, and limitation. And we might be tempted to think, how could such a God possibly relate to me in my weaknesses? And whether or not that is even a valid question, God, in his great kindness and condescension to our weakness, saw fit to answer it. The word became flesh. The eternal son of God, the pre-existent Logos, became a man. He became like us, like his brothers, in every respect. And so he knows what it is to suffer as we do. As the King James puts it, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. So Puritan Thomas Goodwin writes, he both can be or is capable of and likewise he is touched by our infirmities. Our weaknesses touch our Savior's heart, who intercedes on our behalf in the presence of God. Cling to the preciousness of the full humanity of Christ, your mediator, who knows what it is like to suffer as we suffer, to feel hunger, pain, to become tired, right? All of our weaknesses, God the Son has experienced. <clears throat> Back to our text. Christ here, sitting by Jacob's well, wearied from his journey. In verse 7 we read, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, right? So this woman comes to the well where Jesus is sitting and resting, uh, weary from his journey, and Jesus asks her for a drink of water. Now the woman is, first of all, stunned and asks, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? And John adds the explanatory note that typically Jews would have nothing to do with Samaritans, or perhaps that they would never normally share a bucket, share a drinking cup uh, with a Samaritan. Now, to understand this, we have to go back a long way to get the full history between the Jews and Samaritans. Um, now, if you know your biblical history, you may remember that King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, uh, the grandson of King David, uh, Rehoboam became king after Solomon, and that it was in the days of Rehoboam that the kingdoms of Israel and Judah split. Now, the northern ten tribes of Israel rebelled against Rehoboam. Uh, in response, uh, it was actually a judgment against Solomon's sin that this happened, we're told. Um, so the northern ten tribes of Israel rebelled against Rehoboam, and they set up Jeroboam, son of Nebat, as their king. And then the tribes of Judah and Benjamin remained faithful to the house of David and Rehoboam in the southern kingdom. Uh, so according to 1 Kings 16.24, King Omri, uh, king of the northern ten tribes, king of, of Israel, named the new capital city he had built Samaria. Right? That was the name of the city, uh, which we're told was after the name of Shemer, the man whom he bought that land from. 
Uh, D.A. Carson explains that this name of the city, Samaria, was then transferred to the district and sometimes to the entire northern kingdom. The next development, uh, you may remember that the northern kingdom of Israel uh, was captured by the Assyrians. Uh, So D.A. Carson tells us that after the Assyrians captured Samaria uh, in uh, 721 and 22 B.C., uh, we, we then see what happens from, from Scripture. So uh, 2 Kings 17, verse 24, gives us the history here. It says this, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Katha, Ava, Hamath, and Sephavaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. All right, so the northern ten tribes... Uh, named Samaria after this city, uh, was conquered by the Assyrians, and the king of Assyria brought in a bunch of pagans, right, people from Babylon, from these different places that are listed, and many of the Israelites in Samaria were displaced. Um, And so although there were eventually some priests that were sent to teach these people the law of God, actually a bit of a funny story there, uh, God sends wild animals who begin uh, um, wreaking havoc in Israel, And then the king of Assyria is told that uh, the god of that land is angry because the people do not know the customs. And so the king of Assyria actually sends uh, priests to go and teach them the law of God. Um, You can read that in 1 Kings 17, I believe it was. Um, And so although there were eventually some priests sent to teach the people the law, uh, the end result of this was a form of, here's a big word, religious syncretism. And that is when you have a mixture of religious practices. So the pagans who had been brought in to settle the land intermarried with the remaining Israelites. And then we get the end result summarized for us in verse 33, where it says, So they feared the Lord, they feared Yahweh, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. Uh, D.A. Carson then writes that after the exile, so um, the southern kingdom of Judah also went into exile later on. They went into exile in Babylon. Uh, After the exile, Jews returning to their homeland, the remains of the southern kingdom, viewed the Samaritans not only as the children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion had been tainted by various unacceptable elements, close quote. So we see all this history of the conflict between the Jews and Samaritans going all the way back to the break of the northern and southern kingdoms under King Rehoboam. Uh, We see ethnic, political, and religious issues, right? We would understand that as a result of their uh, mingling with pagans and paganism, that these people would have been ceremonially unclean. Their religion was a heretical mixture of the worship of God and elements of paganism. And so this all gives us the background. We can understand the reasons behind what John says in verse 9, explaining to us Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And so we understand the surprise of this Samaritan woman uh, as Jesus comes and asks for a drink from her bucket, and she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Fascinating. Dia Carson comments, She does not know that far from being defiled by what is unclean, Jesus sanctifies what he touches. Others who touch lepers become unclean. Jesus touches a leper and brings healing. Right? You, you see this fascinating reversal in Christ. Right? What are the things in the God's law that would make you ceremonially unclean? Right? Well, you can read that in Leviticus. Uh, it is uh, any sort of infectious skin disease like leprosy, uh, the, the woman with the a, with a bleeding, uh, any sort of discharge of blood or discharge from the body would make you ceremonially unclean, uh, coming into contact with a dead body. Um, and so that's basically the who's who of who comes to Jesus in the Gospels. Right? You see Jesus touching lepers. You see Jesus, or the woman with a discharge, who touches Christ, and she is cleansed. You see Jesus touching dead bodies and raising them back to life. So this fascinating reversal 
instead of the uncleanness spreading to Jesus, the purity goes from Christ to them. Jesus cannot be made impure, but rather what he touches becomes pure, becomes holy. And so this woman did not know to whom she was speaking, as we will continue to see. Jesus answered her, verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So Jesus turns the tables, saying to this woman, you stand by this well that has for centuries been the source of refreshment from God to both man and beast, and you have the bucket. Right? Jesus asked this woman for a drink, and so he appears to be the one in need. On the surface, what you see is that he is the one who thirsts, that she is the one with the means of meeting his need, of quenching his thirst, right? She's got the bucket. She can give him water. But Jesus turns it all around and says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me, and I would give you living water, right? You may have access to this well, You may be able to draw from it and give me a drink. But if you knew me, if you knew who I was, then you would ask and I would grant you living water. Charles Ellicott comments beautifully. says, there is a deep well of spiritual truth in communion with God, which is as necessary for man's true life as water is for the natural life. I stand here with the means to draw, with the power to enter the depths hidden from man, and reveal to your spirit the being of God. It is really you that are the traveler in the journey of life, weary with the burning heat of its trials, and travel-stained by the sins through which you have passed, thirsting in the hopes and fears of that spirit that cannot rest apart from God, helpless at the very side of the well, for the eternal is ever near you and you know him not. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is now here to reveal it to you, you would have asked and he would have given you that spirit, which would have been in you as a fountain of living water. Close quote. So what is this gift of which Jesus speaks? What is this living water? John chapter 7, we see Jesus mentioning living water again. You can turn with me just a few pages to the right. John 7, verse 37. John 7, 37, Jesus is here at the Feast of Booths. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So we get that same phrase here, Rivers of living water. And then John gives us the explanation in verse 39. Let's keep reading. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we see in John 7 that those who thirst may come to Christ and drink. The thirsty may come to Christ and be satisfied. Coming to Christ means believing in him. And Christ declares that those who do will have rivers of living water flowing from their hearts. Which John explains was said about the Spirit. Now in John 3.38, the immediate context to John chapter 4, Jesus was said to be the one who grants the Spirit 
without measure. So the Spirit is this fountain of living water. Christ is the one who grants the Spirit. And so if this woman only knew, she would ask. Instead, missing the point for the moment, she replies, verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Here she is, face to face, with the eternal Son of God. Christ offer, offers to her the living water of eternal life. And she says, But you don't have a bucket. Reminds us a little bit of Nicodemus, doesn't it? Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And how did Nicodemus reply? How can a man be born when he's old? Right? I don't think I'd fit back in the womb. And we see their blindness. Face to face with the author of life. The one who can grant living water, which would well up to eternal life. The one who gives the Spirit without measure. The one through whom they may have eternal life. And they just don't see. You have living water? Where's your bucket? I must be born again? Where can I find a womb that big? That's interesting, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman are very nearly opposites, right? Consider, first, on the one hand, you have an aristocratic, uh, well-respected religious leader among the Jews like Nicodemus, right? A Pharisee, uh, the respected group of holy and scrupulous lawkeepers. And then this woman, a Samaritan, as we've seen, despised by the Jews, right? A half-breed, a peasant, and as we'll see next week, an adulterous woman, a sinner. And we see that the same affliction is upon them both. Apart from the grace of God, this is the universal condition. Right? This is all of us apart from Christ. Blind, hard-hearted. We, like them, can encounter the glories of Christ can be confronted by the weightiest of realities, the greatest of true promises, and the very presence of God. And we can remain unmoved. No taste for spiritual things. No thirst for living waters. But rather, we stare blankly at the one who offers and ask, Where's your bucket? What a pitiable condition. What a horrible blindness. And even for us who are in Christ, while the Lord has graciously opened our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our minds to receive his truth, are we not also frequently still blinded to the true glories of these things? Scripture calls us to taste and to see that the Lord is good. So how it ought to grieve our hearts. When we as Christians who have access to God through prayer, through his word, through the various means of grace. How it ought to grieve us that so often in the face of all these glories, our hearts frequently remain unmoved by these things. The glory is truly there. Right? The blessings we have are glorious beyond imagining. These things are here. The goodness is there to be seen, to be tasted and delighted in. Let it be our prayer. May the redeemed of the Lord never find the things of God to be dull. Let it be our prayer that the Lord would grant us, his people, spiritual taste buds. 
that he would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things in his law, that he would fully incline our hearts to his testimonies and not to worthless gain, that he would unite our hearts to fear his name and always satisfy us in the morning with his steadfast love. Let us see and taste and truly experience the glory that is truly there. Where is your bucket? Where do you plan to get this living water? This woman thinks, I have a bucket, I can draw from this well. You have no bucket, but claim to be able to get living water. Verse 12, she asks, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She's asking, are you greater? Are you superior to Jacob? Are you even greater than Israel himself? Living water, which she mistakes to be a simple fountain or, or spring of literal water, is not to be found around here, which is why we needed this well. And so even the great patriarch Jacob, our ancestor, found it necessary to dig down deep to find this water. Commentators mentioned that well may have been close to 100 feet deep. Are you greater than Israel, than Jacob? And Carson notes that the way she was asking this question is uh, likely sarcastic. Uh, kind of, who do you think you are, right? Where do you plan to get this water? It's a bit of a rhetorical question. Do you think you're greater than Jacob? Right, superior to Israel, because even he had to dig. You've got no shovel or bucket. What's your plan? So, possibly sarcastic, likely disrespectful, and very clearly missing the point. Oh, but the Lord in his mercy answered her graciously. Verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So, is Jesus greater than Jacob? Yes, absolutely. And the answer he gives is, in not so many words, but yes, I am superior for my gift is superior, and my water is superior, and my well is superior, and my sons and daughters are superior, for they never die. What Jesus is offering is truly, vastly superior to what the Samaritans had received from Jacob. Oh. Water is perhaps the most important resource in the world. Think of it, you can survive for a good while without food, uh, but even strong people can only survive a few days without water. We see that if God withholds water, uh, the curse of a drought, unless there is some other source of water, nothing can survive. Famine will follow drought. Water is essential to life. The Garden of Eden, the dwelling place of God, was the source of water from which the rivers flowed out into the world. So we see Eden then as the source of water was thus the source of blessing for the world, providing the basis for life, health, and prosperity to all of God's creatures. For this reason then, we see that water becomes an important symbol in scripture for the blessings of salvation. Uh, Carson comments on some of these uses of water as related to salvation. We see this in the text of scripture. In the day of God's salvation with joy, people will draw water from the wells of salvation, Isaiah 12, 3. God's people will neither hunger nor thirst, but the Lord will guide them by springs of water, Isaiah 49, 10. The pouring out of God's spirit it will be said to be like pouring water on thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, Isaiah 44, 3.
Carson goes on, the language of inner satisfaction and transformation calls to mind a string of prophecies anticipating new hearts, the exchange of failed formalism in religion for a heart that knows and experiences God and hungers to do his will. While the Samaritan woman did not yet understand who Jesus was or what he was offering, the fact is that he is and was far superior to Jacob. For he is far superior to anyone. And the gift that he offers is better than anything else in all the earth. So Jesus draws a metaphor, right? Looking to uh, one of our most pressing physical needs, right? To have water. And he uses this to point to a deeper and more fundamental need. A deeper thirst. For as the water which we drink sustains our lives for a brief time, right, grants us temporary life for us in a sense, in contrast, the living water of Christ becomes a spring in us that wells up to eternal life. What could possibly compare to that gift? Brothers and sisters, what you have in and through Christ is better than anything else in the world, such that Christ says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. A man finds it, and he goes and he sells all of his possessions to buy that field. Or like a man who finds a pearl in a marketplace, and in his joy sells everything he has so he can have that pearl. There is nothing better than having Christ and his gift. So yes, Jesus is greater than Jacob. Jesus is greater than all. Whoever drinks of Jacob's well, Jesus says, is going to be thirsty again. Speaking of, <clears throat> the Samaritan woman is drawing water today, and she'll have to come back probably the next day, and the day after that, and so on. But we see the living water of Christ for those who drink it. This is unique water, right? Like no other water. <laughs> this water, when you drink it, becomes a spring in you. It becomes a source of fresh water in them, welling up, leaping up is the literal word, to eternal life. What a beautiful image of salvation. Those who receive salvation, who receive the Holy Spirit, have within them the wellspring of life. And notice, this is an experience which begins now, begins here on earth, and then finally culminates in salvation. Do you see that? Right? When do we receive the living water of Christ? Should we view it as something we attain only when we die and go to heaven? Right? Then you going to heaven is perhaps the, the metaphorical drinking from the fountain of living water. I don't think so. And here's why. Notice what Jesus says, that if you drink of this water, it will become a spring in you, become a fountain, and then only the end result, the climax of the story, what the bubbling over was progressing toward, is eternal life. Those who come to Christ drink of this fountain now. They receive the Spirit here on earth. We have salvation now. If you are in Christ, you have eternal life now. You have the Spirit, the wellspring, the fountain inside you already. And this matters because it will help you to see things rightly. Jesus says that he who drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Now, this is not only a promise of eternal life, as if you were saying that in heaven there will be no thirst, but rather I believe that it is a statement about the blessing of living as the dwelling place of God here on earth. You, Christian, indwelt as you are by the Holy Spirit of God, have within you the fountain of life. 
right? Christ describes your heart as having streams of living water flowing out of it. That brings to mind the Garden of Eden, the garden sanctuary and dwelling place of God, which was the source of the rivers of life that flowed out and watered the world. With the Spirit of God in you, you are like Eden, a new garden sanctuary with streams of living water flowing from your heart. The Spirit is the fountain, like the rain that waters the earth and gives life to crops, people, and animals. The Spirit gives spiritual life to those He indwells. Now, is this then a promise that those who have the Spirit will never have any unmet desires? Right? We'll never have any more longings of the soul that uh, we would seek satisfaction after? Again, I don't think so. Rather, this is a promise that because of what we have through Christ and in the Spirit, the fountain of life, uh, that we have now within us what we need to satisfy our thirsty souls. Those who drink of the water that Christ gives will never have to go anywhere else to satisfy the thirst of their souls, for the Spirit is the fountain in them that offers what the world never can. And this gets very, very practical. I think we can all relate to the idea of soul thirst. Right? We've, we've had that deep longing for satisfaction, which frequently seems to elude us. We are thirsty. We are seeking something. And our flesh, our sinful nature, would have us looking in all of the wrong places. Right? It would have us go to vices, to sex, pornography, drugs, alcohol. It would have us produce idols as we make gods of things that should not be gods, seeking to satisfy that spiritual thirst through having money, through having nice things, through gaining power and influence, becoming popular, gaining friends or even likes on social media. But if you go to these things, they will be like drinking salt water. For these sources do not quench our thirst. They will only dehydrate further. Right? They will only make your thirst worse. Alexander McLaren writes, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. The appetite grows by what it feeds on, and a little lust yielded to today is a bigger one tomorrow. And half a glass today grows to a bottle in a 12-month. As the old classical saying has it, he who begins by carrying a calf before long is able to carry an ox. So the thirst in the soul needs and drinks down a constantly increasing draft. Sin, when indulged, will not satisfy the thirst in your souls. It cannot. It will only make things worse. And so part of our battle against sin must be to learn to view it rightly. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. When it comes to our battle with sin, we should not view it primarily as a matter of depriving ourselves of that which we want. Rather, we must learn to see things as they truly are. 
And so we must fight fire with fire. We must fight the promise of satisfaction that sin offers with the superior promise of a superior satisfaction found in a superior fountain. Looking to sin to satisfy the thirst of our souls is to scrape at the putrid muck at the bottom of the broken cisterns we have hewn for ourselves while our backs are turned away from God, the fountain of living waters fresh, clean, and pure, and the only true solution to our spiritual thirst. We must aim to view things rightly, to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we would see sin for what it truly is, to see where our spiritual thirst may be truly satisfied, be truly quenched. Speaking from my own experience, gaining this perspective can absolutely transform your battle against sin. Or it changes your outlook entirely. So sanctification, this growing in holiness, is not about depriving yourself of that which you think would make you happy, but go back to Jeremiah 2. We see God does not command us to leave the broken cisterns so that we would instead live a life of perpetual thirst and self-deprivation, pretending that we're not thirsty. Rather, he calls you to turn from those putrid, waterless sources and turn to him, the fountain of living waters. C.S. Lewis writes in The Weight of Glory, he says, the New Testament has lots to say, about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in mod most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly seek it, and to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I would submit that notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises uh, of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The call to deny yourself and follow Christ is not a call to deny joy and embrace a life of cold, joyless obedience. Christianity is not stoicism. The call to deny yourself and to follow Christ is instead the call to turn from the mud pies in the slums to go on a holiday at sea. The call to deny yourself and follow Christ is to turn from your broken cisterns and to turn instead to the fountain of living waters. The call to deny yourself and follow Christ is to stop drinking the salt water of sin, which will only ever make your thirst worse, and instead to drink deeply of the living water offered through Christ. Whoever drinks the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. These are the paths laid out before us. The path of sin, of drinking salt water, perpetual thirst which will end in damnation, 
or the living water of Christ, which truly satisfies, becomes a spring of water bubbling over in you and welling up to eternal life. Isaiah 55, 1 and 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. This gift is offered freely. Christ has purchased these blessings through his finished work, providing for us the righteousness that we need to stand before a holy God and taking the penalty for our sin upon himself as he died upon the cross. And so this gift is offered freely. Salvation, life, Communion with God that begins now through the Spirit and then culminates in eternal life is offered to all who will come in repentance and faith. So come and buy without price, for the price has been paid by the Savior. I'll leave you this morning with Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly 